You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. I hope you are doing well. Today is part three in our series on British mountaineer George Mallory and the assault on Everest. A few notes to start. First, I said in our previous episode that this would be the final show in the series, but it turns out I lied. Bad me. We actually have another episode after this one. There was just a lot of stuff going on, which gave me enough story to fill two shows instead of one. Second note relates to the production time of these episodes. It has been a little longer to put together these recent shows, mostly because I'm finding my research and writing is taking longer. This is because so much about mountaineering, the history of it, the technical details surrounding it, is new to me, which just means I need more time to get everything done. Another thing contributing to this is that there is so much information available about Mallory and these expeditions. More information is a blessing, but it can be a curse as well. There are gobs of books on the subject, many written by those involved. And it's not just books, it's photos and films. All of this material is awesome to have, but wading through it all is a bit daunting and time-consuming. I mention this just so you know why things have been a little slow in coming out. And the final note I have is about the use of things like weights and measures on the show. I'm an American, and we, unlike the rest of the world, use miles and feet and pounds and so forth. Well, to make things more accessible for our international audience, I'm going to start incorporating the metric system into the stories. So you will hear meters alongside feet and centigrade with Fahrenheit, that sort of thing. I hope this makes the show more enjoyable for everyone. So that is it with notes. Let's get going. Last time, we finished the episode with the conclusion of the 1922 British Mount Everest expedition. George Mallory, along with Edward Norton and Howard Somerville, without using oxygen, had gotten to a world record height of 26,985 feet, or 8,225 meters, but had been forced to turn around due to exhaustion and the lateness of the day. A second attempt using oxygen was made by George Finch and Geoffrey Bruce. They would top Mallory's climb by more than 300 feet, or 100 meters, but bad weather and exhaustion would keep them from reaching the summit of Everest. A third attempt on the mountain ended early, and in disaster, when an avalanche would kill seven porters on the way up to the North Call. The latter event cast a pale over the entire expedition, and weighed heavily on Mallory, who had been leading the ascent. Some criticized him for climbing in such conditions. After that, the expedition returned to England, wiser and more knowledgeable, and humbled, they now understood how difficult it was to operate at such altitudes. The winds could reach hurricane force, meaning 75 and even 100 miles per hour. That's 120 to 150 kilometers per hour. Add in the cold and then the effects of the high altitude, and it was all something none of the men had ever experienced. But now they understood the challenges, and that kind of experience was invaluable. By the way, I want to mention that someone shared with me a video of a recent climb up Everest following Mallory's final route. I put a link to it on the website, explorerspodcast.com. It's really stunning to watch. The winds hit them so hard, one of their tents literally gets torn from its moorings and carried off into the sky. 
I recommend watching it or other videos that are out there showing what it's like to be on Everest during a storm. It is scary and extraordinary, and it puts a little perspective on what these men were facing. Okay, back to the story. We talked about oxygen a moment ago, and Mallory had seen its benefits. However, he was skeptical of the bulky and unreliable gear, but he suspected that oxygen might be a necessity to reach the summit. Another thing the team confirmed from this last expedition was that the ideal time to go for the summit was limited. Late May and early June was the best window to make an ascent. After that, the unpredictable monsoon snows would start to hit the region, making climbing a hit or miss affair. So, the expedition members would return to England and be hailed as heroes by the public and press, despite the deaths of the porters on the final climb. However, it was Mallory who was celebrated for his ascent, and not George Finch. This was because of a bias against using oxygen when climbing. Many people argued it was an artificial aid, and using it tainted a person's accomplishments. There was a desire to return to Everest the next year, but the Everest Committee, which was run by the Alpine Club and the Royal Geographical Society, was short on cash. To help raise funds, Mallory and Finch would begin a series of lectures in the fall of 1922. Mallory would do a North American tour as well the following year. It was during this tour that Mallory was reportedly asked, Why climb Mount Everest? He then replied with this famous quote, Because it is there. End quote. The Everest Committee would get a financial boost when John Noel, the filmmaker from the last expedition, bought the rights to the Everest footage for £8,000, which would provide a much-needed injection of cash into the enterprise. By the way, Noel would make a film called Climbing Mount Everest about the 1922 expedition. Now, one sidetrack I want to mention is the Winter Olympics in France, which took place in early 1924. At the closing of the Games, the members of the Everest expedition were presented with a gold medal in alpinism, aka mountaineering, in honor of their achievements. The medals weren't competition medals, and thus not part of the official tally, but it was still a great honor. As a note, the committee included the Gurkha non-commissioned officer, Tejbir Baru, in the honors. Tejbir had gone on the second attempt at the summit, reaching 26,000 feet, or 7,925 meters, before being forced back due to his inadequate clothing. He is still regarded as the only gold medalist for Nepal in Olympic history, which I find kind of cool. So, with a climb for 1923 not in the cards, the Everest Committee set its sights on 1924. General Charles Bruce would be back in command. And, of course, he wanted Mallory to return as well. Mallory, by the way, had, after returning from his speaking tour, taken a job as the assistant secretary and lecturer to the Board of Extramural Studies in Cambridge. Extramural Studies is similar to continuing or adult education. Mallory worked at organized tutorials and classes for working men and women. Remember, Mallory had been a teacher and was a great believer in promoting education. Well, as for Mallory's participation in the upcoming return to Everest, I don't think there was any doubt. Of course he would be back. There was work to be done, a job to finish. Mallory would say to his father, quote, My present feeling is that I have to look at it from the point of view of loyalty to the expedition and of carrying through with the task, end quote. Of course, this all fed into Mallory's growing obsession with Everest. As we mentioned last time, his friends and colleagues said that the mountain had a mental grip on Mallory, and he was determined to reach its summit. At 37, Mallory felt that his window of opportunity to conquer the Great Mountain was closing. He believed this kind of climbing was a young man's affair, and he worried that age would sap his skills sooner or later. And thus, Mallory would sign on as the expedition's climbing leader. In addition to Mallory, others from the previous expedition would join up for the 1924 venture. This included Edward Norton, who would be the expedition's second-in-command, as well as Howard Somerville and Geoffrey Bruce. 
The latter was the younger cousin of General Bruce, and he had been a transport officer on the previous expedition, but for this expedition he was officially a climber. Another returning man was John Noel, the filmmaker and photographer who we discussed a short while ago. New to the team were Mountaineers Noel O'Dell, John DeVars Hazard, and Bentley Betham, plus a young man named Andrew Irvin. The latter, called Sandy, was a 22-year-old engineering whiz from Oxford with limited climbing experience. He will be very important to our story later on. I want to mention that there was some controversy when a man named Richard Graham was invited to join the expedition as a climber. However, Graham, who had been educated by Quakers, had been a conscientious objector in the recent war. This upset some of the men, who threatened to quit over his inclusion. Graham would ultimately resign rather than fracture the party. Now, there is one name missing from the expedition's roster that might surprise you, and that is George Finch, the man who, along with Jeffrey Bruce, had gone higher than anyone in the world. Finch was considered a great climber, and he had experience and expertise that no man could match. So where was he? Well, after a lot of hemming and hawing, the Everest Committee declined to invite him to participate in the 1924 expedition. One explanation was that he had taken money for speaking events, and another issue was that he was divorced. The climbing team was supposed to consist of the finest and most upstanding of men, and a divorced man would be a black mark on the roster. And we can't forget about Finch's belief in the use of oxygen. Many considered it a heresy to use it to climb a mountain. One person said that Finch had been, quote, led astray, end quote, by science, sort of like someone being lured to the dark side of the force. However, there was another very big reason for Finch's exclusion, and it's something I never mentioned last time. Finch was Australian, not British. After he had bested Mallory's climb on the 1922 expedition, some wondered if Finch, using oxygen, would be the person who would reach the top of Everest. Well, that idea didn't sit well with some people. They wanted an Englishman to win this great prize, not some Australian using an artificial aid that would cast a shadow over the accomplishment. No, the inclusion of George Finch was a threat to the Britishness of the expedition and the climbing achievement that the organizers wanted to place in the English cap. Thus, there would be no George Finch. When Mallory found out that Finch wasn't invited, he threatened to quit. However, he would relent after members of the royal family contacted him and no doubt extolled him to do his duty for king and country. So that is the 1924 expedition makeup. As before, it was very heavy on military men, and of course it was all British, with the exception of the medical officer, Richard Hingston, who was Irish. Also, it was still very much made up of men of affluence and those with the right connections. The 1924 expedition was pretty much going to follow the blueprint laid down in 1922. Bruce and a few other members would return to India in late February and head to Darjeeling, where they would start recruiting porters from the Tibetans and Sherpas, as well as buying provisions. When done, there would be 60 porters hired in India, and many others would be added once they reached Tibet. The expedition would also add a chief translator, a Tibetan named Karma Paul, as well as a Siddhar, whose name was Guy Alzin Kazi. The Siddhar is the head of the porters. These two men had held the same positions on the 1922 expedition, and I neglected to include them in the last episode, which was a mistake. No matter their inclusion, it was hoped, would help ensure a smooth journey and mission. By the way, I do want to mention that the local people were critical to the success of the enterprise. It's easy to forget about them, as they are often just numbers and don't do the actual climbing, but we can't forget about their participation and contributions. At the end of the series, we will talk a bit about the legacy of these expeditions and how it forever changed the lives and cultures of these people. So, George Mallory, along with some of the other expedition members, would depart from England on February 29, 1924. They would sail to India on the RMS California. On the ship, Mallory would meet young Sandy Irvin, and the two would immediately hit it off. 
Irvin admired the celebrated climber, and Mallory found the young Irvin to be level-headed and incredibly smart. The men of the expedition would gather in Darjeeling in March before setting out. They would travel through the region of Sikkim and into Tibet, and then go west towards Everest. They reached Shikarzong, the last town before the Great Mountain, on April 23rd. The journey had gone well, except for one major thing, and that was when General George Bruce, the expedition's leader, was struck by malaria. Now you may say, malaria on the Tibetan Plateau? Really? Well, it's not like he caught it there. What had happened was that the cold and winds of the region had activated an old malarial infection. Once that happened, Bruce's health would start to fail. He had fevers and grew fatigued. He would ultimately lose 30 pounds, a.k.a. 13 kilograms. The expedition feared a repeat of 1921, when one of the key members, Alexander Kellis, had died traversing these same routes. Thus, on April 19th, Bruce would relinquish command to Edward Norton and head back to India. While a blow to the expedition, the men had confidence in Norton, who had been a lieutenant colonel in the army. Plus, they were essentially following in the steps that Bruce had helped forge two years earlier. Mallory had every confidence in Norton, who was called Teddy. From Shikardzong, the expedition would head up towards Everest. Just like in 1922, their plan was to go up Rongbuk Glacier to East Rongbuk Glacier and then up to the North Call, a roughly 12-mile or 20-kilometer trek. The expedition's base camp would be established on April 29th, and climbers immediately went out to set up camps at logical intervals along the route to the North Call. This was exactly how they had done things last time. However, there would be one tweak to the plan, and it was important to the mission's success. Last time, the expedition had established five camps on the glaciers and mountain. Three of these camps were on the glaciers. The fourth camp was on the North Call, which was at 23,000 feet, or 7,000 meters. A fifth camp had been established around 25,000 feet, or 7,600 meters. From there, the two teams had set out to try and reach the summit. But the distance between the fifth camp and the top of the mountain was upwards of 4,000 feet, or 1,200 meters. That's a lot of ground to cover for men who are cold and tired and fighting the effects of extreme altitude. Thus, the plan was to set up a sixth camp around 27,000 feet, or 8,200 meters. This would make the final assault on the mountaintop much more manageable. And so that was the plan, but there was one other key element, speed. The expedition wanted to set up their camps quickly and efficiently and make several attempts for the summit before the monsoon snows set in. So with that in mind, the following camps would be set up. Camp 1 would be established at 17,700 feet, or 5,400 meters, at the entrance of the East Rongbuk Valley and the glacier of the same name. Camp 2 would be set up at 19,700 feet, or 6,000 meters, about halfway between camps 1 and 3. Camp 3, also called Advanced Base Camp, was set up at 21,000 feet, or 6,400 meters. About 150 local Tibetan people would be hired to haul gear up the glaciers to these camps. Now, things seem to have been going pretty well, but as we have learned, all good plans go amiss, especially plans that try to predict Mother Nature's behavior. Over the next couple of weeks, as the first three camps were being set up, Everest would get pounded by snow and cold. The snow was the worst to hit the region in 20 years. This would mean several things. One, setting up the camps went slowly. With the heavy snow, the porters simply couldn't go that fast. It was especially difficult going between camps two and three, and some of the porters ended up just abandoning the loads and heading back down the mountain. Also, the cold meant people were getting sick. Bentley Beetham, one of the new climbers, got so ill he was incapacitated for much of the expedition, while Mallory would develop a hacking cough and some reveal a fever. And amongst the Tibetan people, they would not have the clothing necessary to stay warm at 20,000 feet. This meant that there were numerous incidents of frostbite and snow blindness. 
One man would lose both his feet due to frostbite, and another man, a Gurkha NCO, collapsed with a suspected blood clot, perhaps as a result of the high altitude. He would die when they tried to move him down the mountain. Due to all of this, the Tibetan porter's spirits were flagging. The influence of General Bruce, who was beloved by the locals, would have been immensely helpful at this time. I think it's really important to point out that the Tibetans, as well as the Nepalese and Sherpa team members, were not invested in this expedition to the degree of the British participants. The British were there for glory and honor and fame. The porters were there for less than a rupee a day, a pittance. And when their friends and family started losing fingers and toes and getting sick and even dying, many didn't want to go on with the job. I mention this because sometimes the local people will get criticized by the British for not being tough enough or not having what it takes to get the job done, that sort of thing. But in reality, it just didn't mean that much to them. At the end of the day, climbing Everest just wasn't that big of a deal, and it certainly wasn't worth losing life or limb. On May 11th, the weather would grow worse, and Norton would pull all the men out of Camp 3. The next day, Karma Paul, the expedition translator, went down to the Rongbuk Monastery, a four-hour march from Camp 1. Here, he spoke with the monastery's lama, a man greatly respected by the locals, and someone who had been on excellent terms with General Bruce. Karma Paul told the lama that the British were a mountain-worshipping sect on a pilgrimage to the highest mountain in the world. The lama, upon hearing this and the stories of the difficulties on the mountain, invited the entire expedition to come to the monastery. Thus, on May 15th, climbers, Gurkhas, porters, and other staff came to Rongbuk and had tea and noodles with the lama. He said that he would pray for the success of the expedition and offered blessings for those involved. Also, he urged the Tibetan people to be strong and courageous despite the difficult conditions. He told them that demons were forcing them back off the mountain and urged them to try again. The questionable tactic of lying to the local religious leader aside, the Lama's blessing would help buoy the spirits of everyone in attendance. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The expedition would head back up the mountain on May 17th as the weather cleared. Then on May 21st, Somerville, Hazard, and Irvin would go up to the North Call and establish Camp 4. There was no trace of the 1922 expedition camp as everything had been buried or swept away in the past two years. Here, the expedition was at 23,000 feet, or 7,000 meters. As a reminder, the North Call is where Mount Everest met the neighboring mountain, Changzi. At the same time, Mallory and the other climbers would set up fixed ropes on the icy slopes to aid the men going up to the camp. It had been about halfway up to the North Call that the avalanche had struck in 1922, killing the seven porters, and it is a reminder of the dangerous conditions the expedition was now heading into. Once you start to head up to the North Call, the steepness of the climb is much more dramatic, plus the winds pick up and temperatures drop, and then there's the effects of altitude sickness. This means things get much more dangerous. Men get sick and tired, avalanches are more common, and the chance to fall, and fall far, is dramatically increased. Now it is at this time that the weather would turn on the expedition again when a blizzard hit the mountain. It would bring with it snow and cold, 
brutal cold. The temperature plummeted to negative 24 degrees Fahrenheit, or negative 31 Celsius, the coldest temperature they had ever recorded, including those taken high up on the mountain on the previous expedition. On May 23rd, Norton, concerned that things were falling behind, ordered a group of 16 men led by Bruce and Odell up to Camp 4 on the North Call, despite the bitter cold and snow on the horizon. On the North Call, John DeVar Hazard, the only Westerner at the camp at the time, saw the relief column heading up the slope. Knowing that space and food at the camp was limited, and the fact that his men were cold and many were sick, he decided to lead eight of them back down to Camp 3 at this time. He left four porters to prepare the camp for the newcomers. However, as Hazard and his men descended, they would realize that the relief column had turned around due to deteriorating conditions. Hazard could only continue back down the mountain to Camp 3. And as heavy, wet snow pummeled the mountain, the expedition could do nothing for the four men who were now stranded at Camp 4 on the North Call. The next morning, due to the snow, the expedition's commander, Edward Norton, ordered everyone back to Camp 1. As the evacuation began, Norton, along with Mallory and Somerville, prepared to reach the stranded men at Camp 4. Norton was determined not to lose the four porters, not after having endured the tragedy of the avalanche two years earlier. It was a dangerous endeavor. The North Call was blanketed with wet, sticky snow, avalanche snow. Afterward, Mallory would write, quote, Never, I confess, has a task appeared to me so utterly far away and unlikely to be accomplished, end quote. The three men would power their way through knee-deep snow that morning. They took turns leading the climb, having to reblaze the trail with each step. The camp would be reached at 4.30 that afternoon. The four porters were sick, but happy to be able to head back down the mountain. They said that the night had been fearsome, as they had heard the barking of watchdogs, guarding the home of the goddess atop Chamulangma. Chamulangma is the local name for Everest, and legend says that a Tibetan Buddhist goddess lives atop the mountain. By the way, there are some wonderful mythological stories surrounding Everest and the Himalayas, stuff I haven't really touched on, which is kind of weird because I usually love that sort of thing. No matter if it interests you, I urge you to do some research online. It is a lot of fun. On the trek down, two of the porters would fall, but the buildup of snow would keep them from tumbling to disaster. Eventually, all the men would reach safety. It had been a daring and dramatic rescue and could easily have ended in disaster. Mallory, Norton, and Somerville were, justifiably, praised for risking their lives to save the other men. So on May 27th, with the expedition now at Camp 1, Norton would call a council of war for his troops. Frankly, things were not looking good. The weather had been brutal. The men were sick and tired. By this time during the 1922 expedition, they had already made two attempts at the summit. This year, they had not even set a foot above the North Call. This meant that they still had to set up camps at 25,000 and 27,000 feet, or 7,620 and 8,230 meters. With all that in mind, Norton would propose that the expedition concentrate on setting up the two higher camps. He had identified 15 of his elite porters, called Tigers, as the most reliable for the task. These men had displayed exceptional strength, endurance, and competence. Also, he proposed abandoning the idea of doing a climb using oxygen and instead focus on two dashes for the summit. The plan was supported by all the men, with the exception of Mallory, who felt that with their window for climbing diminishing with each passing day, one of the attempts should be made with oxygen. But Norton was set on two non-oxygen attempts and told Mallory to start considering who should make the dashes for the top. And thus, on May 27th, with the weather clearing, the expedition would begin heading back up the glacier. By the way, for the journey up to the North Call, a rope ladder was constructed by Sandy Irvin to help the porters negotiate a difficult cliff. The ladder was an incredible success, and it was a great example of the young man's innovativeness and common sense. 
But the best news over the next few days was the weather. It was clear and calm, and fears that the monsoons were on them abated. And thus, by the end of May, the men were back at Camp 3 and ready to make a final stab at the summit of Everest. Mallory and Bruce, on May 31st, along with nine of the 15 Tigers, marched up to the North Call and prepared to set out the next morning. Now, a reminder. The climb from the North Call meant following the North Ridge up the slope. The North Ridge merged with the Northeast Ridge and took you to the summit. At least, that's the way it looked to Mallory and his colleagues. Mallory's group would reach Camp 5 at 7,700 meters, or 25,260 feet, fighting fierce winds much of the day. Along the way, half of the Tigers would turn around due to the cold and wind and altitude, abandoning their loads about 300 feet, or 90 meters, from the camp in the process. While Mallory prepared the campsite, Bruce and another Tiger went and retrieved the abandoned gear. Camp 5 was described by Norton as, quote, two fragile little tentlets perched on an almost precipitous slope, end quote. The next morning, the plan was to head up to about 27,000 feet, or 8,200 meters, and set up Camp 6. However, once morning arrived, three more of the porters refused to continue. The wind and the cold, plus the night in the oxygen-thin environment, had sapped the men of their will to continue. And with that, Mallory was defeated. He and his team would spend some time improving Camp 5, but with only one porter willing to go any higher, the first attempt on the summit was done. On the way back down to the North Call, Mallory's group would encounter the second assault team led by Norton and Somerville. For Mallory, his attempt was a bitter disappointment. The altitude just took the fight out of the men. Perhaps, Mallory thought, oxygen was the only way to conquer the mountain. But before we find that out, we are going to get back to the second dash to the summit. Norton, Somerville, and six of the Tigers had left the North Call at 6 a.m. on June 2nd. They were disappointed to find Mallory and his team coming back so soon, and they fretted that the porters would be disheartened by what had happened. But with a path blazed before them, the second assault team would do much better than the first, with all of the men reaching Camp 5. At this point, two of the porters would head back down, while the other four would stay with the climbers for the night. The men would wake up the next morning in good spirits and to excellent weather. Somerville, who was a doctor by trade, reported little discomfort with the altitude, a welcome sign. The six men would trudge up the slope of Everest, which was dominated by loose scree. At around 26,700 feet, 8,140 meters, the path gave way to the sloping slabs of the north face, which were coated with loose pebbles. Here, the men found a rocky basin and elected to set up Camp 6. Somerville would say that it was, quote, far from ideal, but on Everest you have got to take what you get and be grateful, end quote. Once camp was set up, the porters were sent back down the slope. It was now just Norton and Somerville. They had coffee and soup for dinner. The two men would depart at 6.45 the next morning in an attempt to reach the summit. The day was perfect for climbing. This was the chance that the expedition had been waiting for. That morning, the climbers found the weathered rock relatively easy going. However, it would not be long before the effects of the altitude were acute, and it would only get worse as they moved higher up the mountain. Breathing would become strained, and every few steps were exhausting. At around 27,500 feet, or 8,380 meters, for every step the men made, they would have to stop and take 8 to 10 breaths. It made for brutally slow progress. At around 28,000 feet, 8,535 meters, Somerville had to call it a day. He was exhausted. He had a terrible sore throat and was struggling to breathe properly. He urged Norton to continue on without him and sat down on the rocks to watch the progress of his companion. Norton would set out, picking his way slowly through the snow-covered slabs of rock. But the expedition's commanding officer was almost as tired as his climbing partner, and his progress was barely a crawl. 
Somerville, who was watching him, said, quote, After an hour, I doubt whether he had risen 80 feet above my level. End quote. Norton was tired and groggy. Also, he had begun to remove his snow goggles on occasion to make sure his steps were sure. He thought taking them off for short stints would be okay. It would prove to be a serious mistake. By the afternoon, he was experiencing double vision. The next day, he would have snow blindness. But for now, the flagging Norton pushed on, at least for a time. However, he knew he could not go on much further. Thus, with the day waning, he halted at 28,126 feet, or 8,573 meters. He was less than 900 feet, or 275 meters, from the summit. The height he had reached was now a world record. Norton would then retrace his steps and rejoin Somerville at 2 p.m. The walk down the mountain would be incredibly dangerous as the two men were so exhausted. Their hearts were beating at 180 beats per minute. Somerville would grow weak and lose the grip of his ice axe, a climber's most precious tool, and it would sail down the mountainside. The two would reach Camp 6 and then continue on to Camp 5. And then, at one point, Norton turned around and saw that Somerville was not behind him. He assumed he had stopped to take a photo. But that's not what had happened. Instead, Howard Somerville was on the verge of dying. Somerville had been growing weaker and weaker on the descent. His throat was killing him, and it was growing more and more difficult just to take a breath. It was here that Somerville's breathing would not just weaken, but stop. It was as if something was lodged in his throat, and he could only gasp for air. He tried to yell to Norton, but no sound would escape his throat. He sat down, thinking he was going to die. Desperate, he tried one last thing, saying, quote, Finally, I pressed my chest with both hands, gave one last almighty push, and the obstruction came up. What a relief. Coughing up a little blood, I once more breathed freely, more freely than I had done in some days. Though the pain was intense, I was a new man. End quote. What had happened was the entire mucous membrane lining Somerville's throat had become badly frostbitten, and he had just coughed it up. Now, if that sounds really gross, I would agree, but know that the mucous membrane will replace itself, so what Somerville was experiencing was not life-threatening. After recovering from his near-death experience, Somerville would catch up with Norton, and the two would reach the North Call in the dark, guided by lanterns held by Mallory and Odell. And with that, the second dash for the summit was over. Of the attempt, Somerville would say, quote, We had a gorgeous day for the climb, almost windless and brilliantly fine, yet were unable to get to the summit. So we have no excuse. We have been beaten in a fair fight, beaten by the height of the mountain, and by our own shortness of breath. But the fight was worth it, worth it every time, and we cherish the privilege of defeat by the world's greatest mountain. End quote. So the two planned attempts to reach the summit of Everest were done. But that did not mean that George Mallory was done. He was disappointed with his try for the top, and thus, even before Norton and Somerville had returned, he was plotting a third try. And this next attempt would be with oxygen. The main question was, who would make the climb with Mallory? Jeffrey Bruce was out of the question. His heart was enlarged due to all the strenuous work. Norton was confined to a dark tent due to his snow blindness, and Somerville was spent. It left Mallory with two choices, Noel O'Dell, a proven, experienced climber, or Sandy Irvin, a novice mountaineer, but young and strong, and an expert with all the oxygen-related gear that would be used on the next assault. Mallory would select Irvin, who he had great confidence in. And besides, Odell had never been a great fan of using oxygen. And so Mallory would head down to Camp 3 to organize and transport all the oxygen equipment up to the North Call for one final attempt on the summit of Chamulangma. And that is where we are going to leave our story for today. Next time, we will go on one last climb with George Mallory, a fateful attempt at obsession and glory. I want to thank everyone for coming along on this journey. 
I hope you've enjoyed this landmark tale of mountaineering. It is not something I have covered in the past, but I am having a great time learning about the subject and telling you this amazing story. So thank you again. Please take care. I will see you next time for the conclusion of George Mallory and the Assault on Everest.